Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord God, open the eyes of our hearts. Soften us. Make us uh, attentive to your word, for you are near to us. You are not far off, but you are in our midst. So we attend to your presence this morning. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would strengthen and renew our faith, that you would give faith to those who are doubting, those who have no faith, give them life in your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The Bible talks a lot about blessing and blessedness and beatitude. Isaiah 56 uses that phrase, that common phrase here in verse 2. Blessed is the man. To bless is to confer goodness or provision or power to someone. It is to, to convey happiness to them. Blessing, right, is fortune, it's favor, it's, it's goodness, it's joy, it's, it's a happy life. And so um, as we begin to dive into this passage today, I just want us to ask the question, does God want you to be happy? Does God want to bless you? Does God care about your happiness? These are not trick questions. They are sincere, and we need to reflect on them, right? There's a lot of different responses to this that are very common, right? The secular response, as they look at Christianity, is to say, um, absolutely not. God doesn't want your happiness. Look at him. He's angry. He's a control freak. He's a sadist, right? Read Richard Dawkins. This is a lot of his literature in The New Atheist. God is a mellow maniac. Mellow, what is that word? He's a maniac, basically, right? 
Uh, he's he's not happy with you. He doesn't want your happiness. He wants to control you. That's how a lot of people envision the God of the Christian faith. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians give this impression. They might also say the same thing. No, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. I hear this a lot, actually, It's and I understand it. It's meant to be a correction to this idea that, you know, God just wants to affirm everything about me. No, God wants you to be holy. He doesn't care about your happiness is the way it gets communicated. Uh, I was reading a, a book on marriage at one point and I remember reading, no, you know, your marriage might be miserable. God doesn't care about you being happy. He wants you to be holy. Just do the right thing. That's very common. And I get why people say that because there are Christians who say, yes, God wants you to be happy and blessed. And what they mean by that is he wants you to be rich and powerful and successful. Hashtag blessed, you know, hashtag blessed Instagram, right? That's that's like an image of the Christian life where it's just God wants you to just kind of be successful in all the ways we think about success in America. And then there's other versions of that, that other types of Christians say, yes, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be emotionally happy and safe and self-actualized and find out who you are inside and be able to express that. And God wants to affirm that. And, and he wants you to be happy and fulfilling yourself in whatever identity you create for you. And then other Christians still would say, yeah, God wants you to be happy, but happiness is a choice. In fact, he commands you to be happy. He tells you, be joyful, get it together. Why are you so sad? Be happy, choose joy. These are all common responses. So what do you think? How do you answer these questions? This has a huge impact on how you walk with God. Does God want you to be happy? Does he want, to, want you to be blessed? We've been looking at Isaiah to get a renewed vision of who God is. I think this is the last sermon in that series. And I think it's a good place to end as we continue to see who, who is God? What does Isaiah tell us about who God is in this renewed vision? We've seen that he's holy and almighty and infinite and eternal and unchanging and immortal. We've looked at who he is, what's his character like. He's abounding in steadfast love and gracious and compassionate and, and patient and full of justice and mercy. He invites us to himself to be satisfied. And today we're going to um, reflect on um, God the blessed Trinity, and whether or not he wants us to be happy. So we're going to look at the God who blesses today. Three points, blessed, cursed, and gathered. Those are our points today. Blessed, cursed, and gathered. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 56. And I want to think about this, this blessedness. Now let me give you a little context here. We're in Isaiah um, 56. And we've looked at other parts of Isaiah already. And, and before we dive into the immediate context of Isaiah 56, I want us to zoom out to the big story in which the Bible um, tells us, in which Isaiah resides. And I want us to see that God created the world and blessed it. This is like the first one of the first things he did. We go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We see that God completed the work of creation by blessing humanity. He made humanity in his image, and it says he blessed them and he commissioned them. They were created. You and I were created in a world that um, was culminating in the blessing of God. He conveyed his favor, his fortune, his desire for prosperity and goodness and joy on humanity. That's what we were created to experience, joy and life in the presence of God forever. That's the first move of God. And of course, as the story goes on, you know that humanity quickly fell under a curse. We rebelled against God. We rejected this blessed life that he offered us to live in. 
and humanity fell under the curse of death. But God didn't just leave us to ourselves. The Bible tells us that God continued to bless humanity, and he did that by calling a man Abraham to himself. And it says that he blessed Abraham, and he promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to the entire earth. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through this man and through his posterity. Again, conveying this favor, this fortune, this goodness and joy on him and saying, this is what's going to spread to the entire earth. And God did this, remember, in the face of our rebellion, in in the context of the curse that had been put on the world. We see this continuing throughout the generations. God bless Isaac and Jacob and even Jacob's 12 sons. As you read through the book of Genesis, you see that chapter 25, 32, and 49. God is blessing them generation to generation. And then when um, he rescues Israel out of Egypt, he has the priests speak this blessing on Israel every day in Numbers chapter 6. God made a covenant with Israel and every day he blessed them and placed his name upon them. So this is the context in which we get to the book of Isaiah, which if you remember in Isaiah, we learn that despite all this blessing that God had conveyed to Israel, they have turned away. They have become like stubborn children. They have worshiped other gods and they have become an unjust, unjust and oppressive people. That the people in their midst at the very bottom, the weakest are being preyed on. There's bribery. There's hunger, there's famine. They have become an unjust people. They have not experienced blessing because they have turned away from the one who blessed them. And so Isaiah 1 through 12 condemns Israel for this and warns of the coming judgment, announces judgment is coming. And we see 13 through 39, those chapters, Isaiah prophesying to the kings and saying judgment has come, telling them to repent. And there's only half-hearted repentance, really. And so we learn that Israel, the northern kingdom is taken off by Assyria. We learn that soon the southern kingdom will be taken off by Babylon. And in chapter 40, Isaiah is writing to a community in the future that is in exile in Babylon, and he speaks this message of comfort to them. He continues to promise them salvation, a a return to blessing. And there God is called the Lord of hosts. He's God, our strength and our salvation, we're reminded that God will rescue people from this curse, from this exile, their promised future blessing. And so when we get to chapter 56, we we kind of get to the end of the book of Isaiah. This final chapter is a call by the prophet to respond to these messages of salvation. And it's a call to internalize the message of salvation in a way that produces a transformed life, something that Israel had failed to do and we, we hear this in chapters 1 through 12. This is the necessary response to God's saving activity. So verse 1, we hear this announcement. Thus says the Lord, here's the response. Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. That's the proper response to God's promise of salvation. Keep justice. Do righteousness. What does he mean by that? Justice is giving people what they deserve. It's, uh, it includes things like treating people with respect and dignity. It means seeking the good of our neighbor. It means trying to promote conditions where the basic needs of everyone are met, especially groups like widows and orphans, the vulnerable. Uh, it means equity before God's law, civilly uh, in, in the courts, no bribery, fairness to poor people, fairness to foreigners, who might be taken advantage of. That is what God says. Live justly. Also, keep righteousness. What what does that mean? It's very broad. Do what is right before God. Do what is right in relation to God. Do what is right in relation to man. As you wait for salvation, he says, 
do justice, do righteousness. And then he says in verse 2, Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeping his hands from doing any evil. So what does he say? Blessed is the man who does this. Does what? Keeps justice and righteousness. But he adds two related ideas to that. Who keeps the Sabbath? Seems like an odd thing there. (laughs) He's telling us, here's how you respond to salvation. Do what's just and keep the Sabbath. Why would he say that? Well, Sabbath, friends, is about worship, but it's also about justice. To keep Sabbath is to care for those who work in your household, even your animals. It is by giving them a chance to rest from their work. Remember, Israel had been in slavery to Egypt. Later, they were exiled to Babylon. These are both conditions of harsh slavery and work. And God rescued his people from that in order that they might experience rest with their work. And so he commands them to be a people that regularly puts down their labor and gives rest to their family and to their employees as well. Sabbath was for servants and animals. It was a safeguard against oppression and greed. And so he says, if you want to live justly, you've got to keep my Sabbaths. And he says something similar in that next phrase, keeping your hand from doing any evil. This is another way of talking about righteousness. All this together, God is commanding, this is the proper response to salvation, to live justly. And he says, the man who lives this way is blessed. The man who lives this way is experiencing the happy life. God is saying to us that the just life is the happy life. Think about this. Wicked people are miserable or will be very soon. Wicked people are miserable or will be very soon. Now, let me just side note here because you may have been tripped up by the fact that I just said there are wicked people. This is an important category for us to have in Scripture. Everyone, the Bible says, is a sinner. Okay, All of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us have turned our own way. So there's a equality among all sinners in one sense. We all fall short of the glory of God. And that should drive us to humility because we all need the grace of God. But the Bible also does have a category for wicked people. That is, not all sinners are in the same place. There are people who have walked down the road of wickedness, who have continually done evil habitually such that it has formed their character and they are overcome by greed and injustice and violence and theft and sexual morality and so on. And we do need this category to make sense of our world. It's it's not helpful if we flatten all sin and all sinners and say we're all the same in every sense. We need to be humble people but we should not be uh, naive people. So let me get back to this. Wicked people are miserable or will be soon. What do I mean by that? Wicked people are always craving more and more to have their desires satisfied, right? They live out of this place of scarcity that needs to be filled. They're constantly seeking to get, right? There's a self-centeredness and a greed that drives the wicked man. And so they are always unhappy, never satisfied, always wanting more. And God says, blessed is the man who does justice. The just man is someone who is able to wait for God's salvation and thus is happy. Why? Because the blessed man lives with confidence in the abundance of God. The just man lives 
in the confidence of the abundance of God. The wicked man lives in scarcity. The just man lives in the knowledge of abundance. The blessed man um, multiplies what God gives him. He gives, he builds, he shares, and there's an increase to his life. The wicked man diminishes and steals and destroys and constantly consumes. The blessed man gives and lives justly, but is always full, even though he's giving. The wicked man takes, but is always finding himself empty. This is why Jesus said, and Paul quotes him in Acts chapter 20, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And this is how Yahweh calls Israel and us too to live as we wait for God's salvation. This is what he means when he says in this passage, everyone who holds fast my covenant. You see that in there a couple of places. The the, the different characters he mentions are keeping covenant with him. That is, they're trusting in his salvation, and then they are walking with God in obedience, living a just life. And God says, these are the people who are blessed. God blesses, he saves. We trust in that, and it results in a life of justice. Eugene Peterson has this great, I think, quote about God and his blessedness. He says, the good life that God, this is a paraphrase, the good life that God created for us is a life bounded on one side by the promise of blessing, that's future, on the other side by the pronouncement of blessing, that's our creation, and in between the experience of blessing between those boundaries. What Eugene Peterson is saying is that God desires for us to live a happy life, a blessed life. We were created that way. He promised it in the future, and he offers it to us even here and now. Okay, great. God created us for blessing. He promises blessing. But you might be saying, but my life doesn't always feel very blessed. So that's the second thing I want us to reflect on today, this this cursedness. And I want us to hone in on verse 3 in particular. Now, the, the reality is, we usually don't live or we often don't experience life as blessedness, do we? Uh, you, you may be sitting here right now thinking about, yeah, sure, God wants to bless me. And you're sitting thinking of your family drama or conflict or chaos or caring for difficult children or parents. Or you're thinking about physical pain that you live with on a regular basis, disease, injury, scars, exhaustion. You might be thinking socially about isolation you feel and loneliness or strife in your life or betrayal or brokenness in relationships. You might be thinking of just emotionally you feel indifferent a lot of the time or stressed or depressed or anxious or disappointed. Or maybe you're just heavy with the sense that there is death looming over this world and you have lost loved ones and friends or you see your death approaching. And so you think, Okay, God promises blessing, but what looms over my life is this curse of sin and death. And if you you reflect on that, you might say, this experience makes it hard for me to believe that God wants us to be happy, that he wants to bless us. And the Lord has a word for this. He he, he speaks directly to this in verse 3. He says to people that are living and experiencing the cursedness of life, he says this to them. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. 
Now, both of these groups are explicitly forbidden from gathering as part of Israel's congregation in the courts of the Lord. If you look at Deuteronomy 23, both of these groups are mentioned. There's there's an outcastness to these groups of people. They're, They're the down and out. They're the outsiders of Israel's community. Foreigners are just simply aliens or uh, sojourners, people who are from other places that are not Israelites, who are living in the land. And just to be clear, because we can sometimes miss this, and that day and age, you didn't just say, oh, I'm going to move to France. That sounds nice. Like That's not how it worked back then. If you were a foreigner, you were fleeing oppression or violence or famine. You had to leave your home. It was not a good reason. And you had to live in a place where you were a foreigner. And of course, that led to people being suspicious of you. What are you doing here? What are you? What you know? What are these practices that you have? They're very strange. Um, you didn't have your social safety net if you moved to some foreign place that you would have if you lived in your community. To be a foreigner was a difficult thing, and this is a this is a category in the Bible for vulnerable people. And I wonder if you can relate to that to, to feeling like a foreigner in some way. Do you, do you ever feel? Um, or worry that you'll be accepted by God, right? Do you ever feel like an outsider or an outcast in this community or in any community? Have you ever wondered if you belong anywhere at all? Do you ever feel lonely and exposed and vulnerable and unsafe? Have you ever felt the hostility and animosity of others? If you have, then you have some sense of what it was like to be a foreigner in Israel or anywhere really. Surely we've all felt like that at some point. We've all experienced that, and that is not blessedness. There's this other category he mentions, the eunuchs. Uh, frankly, those are castrated males. Eunuchs in the, in the ancient world were made eunuchs, usually because a king wanted them to serve in his courts, but didn't want to have to worry about what he might do with his wife or harem or daughters. And so in order to ensure there would not be any inappropriate behavior. They were castrated, which of course meant they were going to be physically damaged. They couldn't start a family, uh, and they were economically and socially dependent on the, the king's good graces at that point. And of course, that probably came along with it some shame. In Israel, it meant they couldn't gather in the temple. It certainly had that limit on them. Uh, their status was affected by this. They couldn't start a family. They couldn't establish a legacy. They didn't necessarily have the same place in society that most people had. It was an alienating experience. And you can imagine Israel sent into exile. Uh, We know some of them were made eunuchs to serve in Babylon in the king of Babylon's courts. And so they're returning to the promised land, and and yet they they are scarred. Their exile has, has scarred them and wounded them. And so I wonder if you can relate to that in some way. Have you ever felt uh, like a eunuch in some respect, that, that you were hopeless about your future? that you have maybe experienced some shame or anger about your body or about your, or about your place in a group of people. Maybe you felt trapped with no way to change your situation. You've longed for a family, but it didn't happen or it won't happen. Surely we've all felt like, like this in some way. And that, friends, of course, is not the blessed life. But Yahweh is offering a word of comfort and hope to his people. And he says, those strangers, those eunuchs who have joined themselves to the Lord, this is a covenant language. He's saying they have trusted in God's salvation. 
and they are walking before him. They are keeping the Sabbath. They're keeping covenant. They're living a just life. He says, your present circumstances are not the whole story. He says, I'm seeing you and I hear what you're going through. And he says to them, do not think I have cursed you and that you will always be cursed. That is a huge lie of the enemy, he says. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that that curse is not going to hang over us? It's because the salvation of Yahweh far exceeds the curse to all who keep covenant. That's the promise that he's making here. The blessing of God far exceeds the experience of the curse. And so I want us to look lastly at this way that God gathers people in verses 4 through 8. God says to the eunuchs particularly, he changes the order, he speaks first to them, and he says, I will give you a monument in my house and within my walls. To the one who cannot have a family, he says, I'm going to establish this monument within my own house, within the temple. You're going to be like a pillar of the community. You're going to be given this place of honor. He says, you're going to be given an everlasting name that is better than sons and daughters, right? A family name, friends can die off in a generation. But he says, I'm going to give you a name that's going to last forever. Your legacy will continue on. And his point here is that his blessing far exceeds what the eunuch misses out on. Our heartbreak and pain, he says, is going to be transcended. Whatever makes you weep, whatever brings you shame and disappointment, whatever leads you to despair, God's salvation is far greater. And so you can rejoice even now in what will be. And to the foreigner, he says, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful. The foreigner who could not enter into the temple, um, he says, I'm going to welcome you all the way in. Don't say that you're going to be excluded from God's people. I'm going to gather, he says, the outcasts of Israel. I'm going to include them. He promises them they will not be excluded from God's blessing. They're not going to be cast out. Whatever makes you feel lost, he says, on the outside, excluded, overlooked, hindered, trapped, whatever brings you fear about your place in this world, God's salvation will not miss you as you keep covenant with him. God's blessing far exceeds what we miss out on in this life. All who keep covenant with him will not miss out on his blessing. Friends, this is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise of God's salvation. And it's grounded in the blessed Trinity. God exists. I was just teaching this morning on the Trinity and our class on the Creed. God exists as a loving community of persons eternally. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in this life of joy everlasting. God is full of beatitude. He's full of blessing. He is living the happy life, and he always has lived the happy life. And he created the world, and he redeemed sinners as an overflow of his joy. It is, a, it is an invitation to join into the, the blessed life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so how did God accomplish that? He sent the Son to secure God's blessing for us. And Jesus, the Son of God, secured God's blessing for us. He gave his life by dying this death of a wicked man so that we might live as though we were just men and women. Jesus, who is the ultimate insider, right? The, the second person of the Trinity, 
became an outsider in the world in order to bring us into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He became a stranger in this world and died as an outcast in his community so that we would be united to him together as a church, as Jew and Gentile, as all sorts of different nations gathered together, united to Jesus, and brought to the Father. And that's why we learn in the New Testament the church is a house of prayer for all people. And we have a place in that through faith in Christ. Jesus, the creator, full of generative power, lived the life of a single man, never married, no children, and he was crushed, his body was damaged, and he died without any family legacy so that his family name could be given to all those who trust in Jesus. So does God want us to be happy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus proves that God wants us to be happy, to be blessed. And Jesus is the beatitude, the happy life of God that he gave to us, that we might be welcomed into the happy life of the triune God. To know and love Jesus is to have God's blessing now, and it's a promise of having God's blessing forever. This is not the, the hashtag blessed life. Let me be very clear about that. I am not saying God wants you to have the hashtag blessed life. He's inviting us into something much greater, that even though we will miss out on many good things in this life, he promises beatitude evermore in his presence. God created us in blessing. He promises this blessing, and he enables us to live a blessed life even now as we anticipate beatitude forever. So what do we do with this? What's the right response to knowing that God wants our happiness, our blessedness? The first thing is that we have to hold fast to the covenant. That's the assumption of this whole passage. He says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who hold fast to my covenant, how do you do that? You, you do that by trusting in Jesus Christ. That's first and foremost, the stipulation of the covenant in Jesus Christ that we lean wholly on Jesus, that we trust that he died for our evil and our wickedness so that we might live. That's the first step. We trust in the salvation of God offered in Jesus Christ, and then we keep his covenant by doing justice. This is an absolute requirement of walking as a Christian. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Christians must live justly in our work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, we are to be people of injustice or of justice, integrity, service, doing good to our neighbor, looking out for the poor, watching out for the vulnerable, thinking about producing conditions in which people can work to have what they need to survive, that the rights are given to each person around us. This is the work of justice in our lives. To keep our Sabbath, to rest. If you have employees, to give them rest. This is a requirement of the Christian faith. It's part of keeping covenant with God. And that is the blessed life. And so the second thing we need to understand then is if we keep covenant with God, then we live in this life of beatitude in order to be a blessing to other people, right? Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive. This is a principle that's hard to get our mind around, but we need to do this as Christians. In order to experience blessing, we need to be people who take the blessing God gives us, and consider how we share that blessing with other people. If we don't share it with other people, we are failing to experience the blessedness of the gift. One of the challenges we face today is a hyper fear of commitment. 
We're terrified of commitment. Why? Because commitment limits us. And if we are limited, we may miss out on other opportunities that we think might make us happy. And we sign up for people, things, events, schedules, whatever, that might be hard. And so we're terrified of commitment. But friends, the blessed life entails commitments. That, that's, that's part of being blessed in order to bless other people is we bind ourselves to people, we bind ourselves to places in order to bless other people. And in the long run, we learn this is actually what produces the happy life, right? There are so many goods that our culture today cannot understand and comprehend because we're so terrified of ways people might harm us or we might be hindered in some way and being authentic and who we are. And so we reject commitments. But friends, the blessed life requires us to bind ourselves to God and to his people and to many other things in order that we long-term experience blessedness. That's a giving of ourselves to other people. And God says, that's more blessed to give than to receive. And lastly, uh, we respond to all this with joy. If we are blessed, then we will find joy. Now that right there might hit you a little hard, or you might have a problem with that. But because I, I want us to be clear, though, what I'm not saying is, is that you just better be happy. I'm not wagging my finger at you. I'm not saying, hey, look, God commands you to be joy. So what's your problem? Why don't you just get over it and be happy? That's not what I'm saying. God does not want us to fake it. He wants us to grow into the sort of people who can experience the joy that's on offer in him. And that does take work. It's a long-term project. It's not immediate. You can't just pretend you're happy. But God says, there is a way to experience the joy I'm offering. There's a way to have joy amidst the weeping. And it, it's hard, but it is life-giving. And it starts with remembering what God has done. And it continues with giving ourselves to others. And it continues in putting our hope in what God will ultimately give us. And as we learn those rhythms, as we let that truth go into us, over time, we find that it makes us the sort of people that can have joy in every circumstance. And that ultimately, I want you to hear today, is what God is like. God is a blessed giver. He, he gives himself to you that you might find joy. I hope you believe that. That's what this meal is all about. This meal shows us that God is one who gives himself that we might um, experience the blessed life. In the bread and wine, we see that Christ gave his body to pay for our sin, that he shed his blood on the cross. He was crushed so that we would be washed and renewed and that we might be brought up through Christ into the divine life and experience joy evermore. So as we feast in the moment at this table, uh, I invite you to trust in him. And to turn your life towards living justly, pouring yourself out to give to others that you might experience blessing even now as we anticipate this feast that is to come. Let's pray. Let's pray together.